I, uh, I'm glad everybody's here this morning. Let's take our Bibles and open to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Chapter 4, we're going to do a brief review, and then we will continue in our study, of course, in the, the uh, second coming of Christ, and we want to get today, Lord willing, get into chapter 5, <coughs> um, and uh, look at what it says uh, about the timing, especially the timing of the coming of the Lord. And uh, do a little Bible study here. Hope you all came ready to study the Bible. And so we're going to use the Bible today. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's um, read, just uh, by way of, your, of review, read chapter 4, verse 13, down through verse number 18. The Bible says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. All right, let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord in heaven, thank you, first of all, for how much you love us and for the constancy of your love and grace and mercy to us. Lord, we know that at all times, be it in life, be it in death, in good times, in bad times, in sorrow and in joy, Lord, that you always are full of compassion and care and grace and love to us, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for the cross and how much you showed your love to us. Thank you for uh, bleeding and dying on the cross for, for me, but also, Lord, for each and every one of these people here that are part of your church. Lord, thank you for your church. Thank you for all that are assembled here this morning. And thank you for giving strength to those that, are, uh, that uh, deal with a great deal of weakness uh, so that they can be here this morning. Thank you for those that are listening that can't be here as well. And uh, Lord, I pray that especially that you would meet with us, you would guide our study and encourage us to do your will with, uh, with great zeal and desire more than we have up to this point. And uh, work in each one of our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 4, just in review, to, uh, the, the passage that we just read, verses 13 through 18, of course, is the proof text of the rapture of, of the church. And we, we studied last week, and we looked at the, uh, uh, actually a couple weeks ago, we looked at the different viewpoints of the rapture. You have the the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation or pre-wrath rapture, you have the post-tribulation rapture, and then you have the partial rapture. And uh, we looked at those things in some detail. And, uh, and of course, this passage here is the proof text of the rapture. And we talked about how that 
the rapture, the fact of the rapture, the fact that there will be an event that we call the rapture, although admittedly the word rapture does not occur in this text, but what word, okay, trivia, what word in these five, five or six verses, what word is the word that signals that that is the word from which we get the term rapture in this passage? What, what is the word? Caught up, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Correct. And we looked at several other passages that use the same, the same sort of word, same definition, same underlying word from which this is translated. And so that doesn't bother us. We know that we sometimes coin terms for ease that help us uh, refer to the same event. So the, the question of the rapture, the fact of the rapture of the saints is, is something that's not really disputed by, by anybody who even you know, even remotely believes the Bible. And so we just accept that and, um, and we know the Bible teaches it. And this passage, although it is the text passage for the rapture of the saints, does not give us any indication as to the time. It just, it, it, the purpose of this passage, as I said last week, is in verse number 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. That's what this passage, this passage does two things. It establishes the fact of the rapture, that it is this and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 establish that there is an event, a future event called the rapture, a literal event. But it also establishes what happens to, to people that are in Christ who die before the Lord returns. And of course, this would have been a question. Uh, we, we live in a Christian culture. Pretty much everyone, even if they're atheists, sometimes atheists or people that are agnostic, often even those people acknowledge that when someone dies, they go to heaven or they go to hell or something of, to that nature because of our culture. But you got to realize at the time, you know, if you, for instance, if you were in Cambodia and you were to say what happens when you die, you don't get, you don't get that that understood answer, or a lot of you wouldn't meet a lot of people that would that would say the same thing as we might say, um, and su- such was true in the uh, first century as well, being that they lived in a pagan culture also, and so um, so this establishes that. But again, the time of the rapture is not discussed here. In other words, where it occurs in relation to the other events of the scripture that we have studied concerning the Lord's return. Now, I want to, uh, before we move on, I want to just briefly look at a couple of points here, and then we'll get into, we'll get into chapter 5. Look at verse number 14. Verse number 14. The Bible says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. It's interesting the word God is used because who is coming? Who is coming? Look at verse uh, number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. And we know, of course, um, we know, of course, that the, from the other passages of Scripture that the one who's coming is Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity. And that Jesus is coming, but it says in verse 14, it uses the, uses the term God. 
which is a good indicator of the deity of Christ. In other words, the, the word God and the word Lord are used, are switched out. So when you can, you can say, and people do say it, and it's right, according to this passage, that when Jesus comes, God, you could say that God is coming for his saints. And that's true. That's true. But the second thing you can see from this, the second thing you can see from this is where those that, ha- that are asleep in Jesus are right now. In verse number 14, you see that. Because it, in verse 14, it says, God will bring those sleeping saints with him. That means that at this moment, they are with him. And when he comes, they will come with him. So right now they're with him. And when he returns, he's coming with them because they're presently with him in heaven. And, uh, and so, uh, and just as a side note here, it says, they also which sleep in Jesus. This is not the sleep of the soul, like some cults and things would try to, try to teach you. It's the sleep of the what? The body. The body. And so the death of the saint is referred to as when the body goes to sleep because it's obviously, it's like, it's like sleep. And, or it's, you know, it appears that way anyhow. So this is not the sleep of the soul. This is the sleep of the body. The soul is conscious and with the Lord in heaven. So let's look at a couple, uh, one more thing here. The question sometimes comes up, and it was asked by someone in our class, and it's a valid, it's a valid question, which is this. When, when the rapture of the saints happen, happens, who will be included? Who will be excluded? Right? That's a, that's a valid question, I think. Um, I don't think that we can give, a, give an answer that is perfectly clear and unambiguous because the Scripture does not address it directly. But I think we can kind of discern some things. Look at, it, look at this passage in particular. It says this. In other words, let, let me back up a little bit. In other words, will, for instance, Old Testament saints like David and Solomon and, 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 and Elijah, and well, Elijah's kind of a special case because Elijah didn't die. But anyway, did, will the Old Testament saints be included in this, in this rapture or not? That's the question. Another question a lot of times people ask is, what about children? Now, I have a theory about children who are maybe like people like Robert and Seth, young children that have not reached an age where they can understand the gospel. I have a theory about that. Maybe one day we'll cover that, but not right now. But I have a theory about whether those children will be raptured. And there's, you know, there's some scripture that can be brought to bear on that as well. But as concerning the first question, who will be included in this rapture? Number one, we know that saints, which are alive at the coming of the Lord, there's one. And then in verse number 14, what does it say? Them also which sleep in Jesus. So those that sleep in Jesus, whatever that means. And then in verse number 16, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And here's the key phrase, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, if you study the New Testament, you know that the term in Christ is a very specific term. It's a very specific term. Uh, it's It's a reference. It's a reference to the body of Christ. So when someone believes in Christ, they trust in Christ, and they're saved. They are at that time baptized, not up there, that's different. They're baptized at that time into the body of Christ. 
That's how you get into the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with water. It has to do with the Spirit of God. So a person believes in Christ, and at that moment they are baptized into Christ. So they are in Christ by virtue of that spiritual baptism, by the Spirit of God. And they have the Spirit of God in them. So something happens to them, and someone is given to them the Spirit of God, and from that moment they are in Christ. And so you have verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17, Wherefore, if any man be, what? In Christ. And there's many other passages you could look at. Uh, Paul mentions in one of his personal notes, in one of his epistles, he mentions how that there was a, another believer who was in Christ before him, which is a reference to his salvation. Someone had believed in Christ before Paul had, and he said he was in Christ. So this is a particular New Testament term. And I don't think there's reason to think that that includes Old Testament saints because Old Testament saints lived before Christ came. Now, we know Jesus has eternal existence and all that. We can argue all that. But that's, the point is, is that this is a New Testament term that references the body of Christ, which is the church. This is the reason, and probably as, uh, as you know, that's as, is probably as about as good as we're going to get to really defining and, and limiting who exactly this is talking about. This is why we say, though, we call it the rapture of the church, because it refers to those who are raptured that are in Christ. Okay? So there's a, there's a couple of, of points just to kind of wrap up and tie up some loose ends from chapter 4. So with that, we will move on to chapter 5, which is where we deal with the subject of the timing. When will this event happen, this rapture? When will it happen in relationship to the other events that are uh, significant regarding the coming of the Lord? A little bit of a review, though, okay? You you guys can help me out. When we talk about the coming of the Lord, there's a number of major events that are significant to that that ultimate climactic event when Jesus returns in his second advent. What are some of those major events that, are, that, are, that occur around the same time or right before Jesus uh, is revealed from heaven? Somebody help me. Give me. Somebody give me one event. Just yell it out. I hear, I hear whispers. I hear whispers. Okay, you have... Say again. Trumpet? Well, I'm talking about when Jesus comes, the second advent. The second advent. You have a time of great tribulation, right? You have signs in heaven, and you have signs on earth, right? What other kinds of things? There's wars and rumors of wars. You have things that happen with Israel. You have the fleeing of Israel going into the wilderness, and you have the rise of the Antichrist. You have all of these things that, and of course there's other things, other major events we read, especially in Revelation and in 2 Thessalonians. But the question is, where does the rapture occur in relation to all of these other events? That's one reason why I wanted to study all those other things first. Because the fact of the rapture settled. The question is really when it happens. And really... People aren't really all that interested in that question. What they really want to know is, am I going to have to live through that tribulation? That's, that's the real crux of the matter. That's the real crux of the matter. And that's what we want to, want to talk about. 
All right, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read verses 1 through verse 11. It says this. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Now, times and seasons, times and seasons. This phrase occurs three times in the Bible, all right? One of the times it occurs is in Acts chapter 1, right before the Lord ascends. You know that? Right before He ascends, the, the disciples are with the Lord, and they're saying, Okay, Lord, you've done everything that you said you were going to do. Is it time for the kingdom to be restored again to Israel? And Jesus answers and says what? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. So this phrase is a reference to the timing regarding the coming of the Lord. All right? He says, you have no need that I write unto you. Verse 2, for yourselves know perfectly. I'm just going to read it through so I don't get bogged down here. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do. How many of you have heard that the coming? How many of you, you? How many of you have heard culturally that the coming of the Lord is like a thief in the night? That's a very common, right? <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> the reference to thief in the night and the coming of the Lord. Now, listen to me. Listen to me closely. This reference to the Lord's coming as a thief in the night has become a widely misunderstood comparison for the Lord's return. Why do I say that? Because of verse number 4. Look at what it says. In verse 3, uh, verse 2 rather, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord says, the Lord's coming is as a thief in the night. But in verse 4, He says, but ye brethren, what does it say? But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So here's the thing. You being, of course, the church. Here's, what, here's the thing. To the world, the Lord's return is as a thief in the night. But to you, it is not. That's a key distinction. I'll repeat it again. The Lord, you know, of course, this is a reference to Matthew when the Lord said that if, 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 the, if the goodman of the house knew the hour in which the thief would come, he would, he would stay up, basically, and he would not allow his, his house to be broken up, right? If you knew someone was coming, like my, my ironically, my uh, house alarm went off and I found just a minute ago, and I found out that 
I had a thief in my house. It was a four-legged hairy thief that got out of her cage somehow. But, but if, I, if you knew when a thief would come into your house at night, you would stay up and you would be prepared and you wouldn't let your house be, just be broken up and your things get stolen and your family harmed. You would stay up. But see, that statement is for the world. In verse number four, the Lord says, that's not for you. That's not for you, the church. That day is not going to overtake you as a thief because the Lord's not coming to plunder and destroy you, right? We already discussed this multiple times. This same statement is found in verse number nine, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. God does not have wrath for us. He's not coming to plunder our house like a thief in the night. No, 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 no. That's not his plan for us at all. So the Lord's coming is not a thief in the night to us. It's something to be feared, but it's something to be looked for. I mean, how many, how many people would sit in their house and, and would expectantly wait on the thief to come with joy and excitement? No, but that's how the Christian, yeah, <laughs> you had your gun ready, man. But I don't know about the joy and joy part, but, uh, but that's, that's how the Christian is to receive the coming of the Lord, is with joy. So the thief in the night part is often misunderstood, but in verse number four, we see it's not to us. It's not to Christians. That is actually a statement to the world. And the world should fear. When the Lord returns as a thief in the night, he returns with great wrath. And it is, a, it is a day to be feared. The day of the Lord is not a day of joy, but a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of punishment, a day of wrath, as we've already studied these things. But notice, notice these things here. Verse 3, For when they shall say, let me, let me do this. The best way to show this contrast is to show you in the text itself. <clears throat> Give me just a minute for this to warm up. Should have done it earlier, I guess. Now, while we're waiting on that, here's what I want you to understand. <clears throat> And I'll show you in the text why this, why this is so. In this text, despite the, the mentions of wrath and destruction, there is no threat of destruction to the Christian mentioned in, in this passage, even in passing. There, again, there is no threat or warning of destruction in this passage to the believer. There is a clear distinction made between the believer and the unbeliever as it relates to the coming of the Lord. The Lord does give us exhortations. He does give us some, some things we need to be doing to prepare for the coming of the Lord, but those things do not relate to any threat of impending doom. Right? Now, look at this. Oh, I have it. Yeah, it's kind of hard to see it when it's blocked, right? Okay. Can everybody see that okay? Fairly okay? Okay. What this is, is this is our passage, and I want to draw your attention to the red and the green underlines, okay? Now, there is a clear distinction made in the, in the, the pronouns, okay? All right, these are all she, he, okay? We're not doing she or zher or whatever, <laughs> okay? 
they and them, but those are plural. We're not using they and them referring to an individual, okay? okay. I'm not going woke on you, I promise. All right, so it says this, starting at the top, for of the times and seasons, brethren, notice ye, that's you, that's the, the people to whom Paul is addressing, uh, Paul's addressing, rather, ye have no need that I write unto you, I forgot to underline you, sorry about that, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. But notice the, the transition. For when they, that's third person, that's other people. When they shall say peace and safety, this is the world now, those that do not know God, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as to veil upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But notice the, notice the pace turns. But ye, Christians, right, believers, Brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye, that's the church, are all the children of light and the children of the day. We, now Paul includes himself there, are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. That's them, those that do not know God. Let, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep in the night, sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. You see a clear contrast. When you look at the green underlines, when the Lord is talking to the church, there is no threat of, no threat of doom or, or threat of destruction at all. And he, and, and he makes a clear distinction and contrast between the two groups. You see, this is the reason, by looking at the grammar, this is the reason why we understand that the Lord does not have destruction for us. And that is the crux of the timing of the rapture. That is the crux, and it says it plainly. Now, if you're part of the world and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is great, great reason to be fearful. But the coming of the Lord should not bring fear to our hearts. It should motivate us, as we'll see in a minute, it should motivate us to, to a certain kind of life, but not fear. Not terror. Certainly not terror. Okay? And so you see a clear distinction here. Now, <clears throat> look at verses 4 and 5, if you would. I'm going to turn this off. Look at verses 4 and 5. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Notice that. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. In verses 4 and 5, you do not see any ifs. Do you? If you live right, you are not of the darkness. If you live right, you are, are the children of light. No. These are clear declarative statements of the position of the Christian. God says, Zach, you are not of the darkness. Zach, you are a child of light. Right? This is a statement. And when God makes statements like that, he's not making a conditional statement like, Brother Robbie, if you live right, then I'll count you as a child of light. No, 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 no. A lot of people misunderstand the Scripture in this way. They, they miss these clear, definitive statements. God is saying, Brother Robbie, you are a child of light, so live like it. It's not the reverse. If you live like a child of light, then you are a child of light. No, no, no. God says you are. 
And that's, that, does that not give us a great deal of security? And it totally changes our motivation. We're not living for God in order to be a child of light as if we're under some threat. That's the whole error in reading this. We are living for the Lord because we are already His child, the child of children of light, the children of the day. That's the reason we should live consistent with that. I mean, how many times with your kids, when you talk to your kids and your kids are acting up, Brother Lester, do you, you, do you ever say to them, do you ever say to them, now listen, now listen, Eli, if you don't start acting right, you're not my child. No. But for me, what I say, what I, sometimes I'll say to my kids, especially as they get older, maybe not that age, especially as they get older, I'll be like, look, we don't do this. You're, you're a part of our family. I'll say this to my kids. We don't do this. This is not what we do. We have higher standards in this. You know, we try to live according to God's word. In other words, the exhortation is from the position of you are a part of this family. Nothing's going to change that, but you need to live consistent with that, right? And that's what the Lord is doing here. Now, if you look at the passage, there's mentions, mentioning, uh, the Lord mentions day and night. Now, there's, there's a contrast here. You have day versus night. You have light versus darkness. You have watching versus sleeping. You have soberness versus drunkenness. The Lord says plainly, you're a child of the day. You're a child of light. Your life is lived in light. The Lord's not coming to plunder your house at night. You are daytime. You live in the day. Now for the world who lives in the dark, the Lord's going to destroy and bring destruction upon them. But you're a child of the day. So even though we don't know the exact time that the Lord will return, we know that He is. So it's not unexpected to us. The time He might come isn't, might be unexpected, but the fact of His coming is not unexpected. But we should nevertheless prepare, for, prepare ourselves. Look at what it says. Verse 6. The Lord gives us some imperatives. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others but let us watch and be sober. 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 Of course, we think of sobriety as the, you know, refraining from alcohol. But of course, in the scripture, it has a broader meaning than that. Sobriety means this, to be moderate, to be temperate, to avoid excess. And of course, it also means not given to the indulgence of alcohol, but or any kind of appetite, be it Appetite for food or appetite for pleasure or appetite for sexual things. These, this all deals with sobriety. But it is also another a facet of meaning, which means to be grave, to be serious, to be solemn, to have a serious mind or purpose. Here's what the Lord says. Jesus is coming. You're a child of the day. His coming's not taking you by surprise. You know He's coming. You know you're going to meet Him. So you need to be sober. That's what the Lord's saying. Here, let me just put it in the way I view it, okay? The way I understand it, kind of putting all things together. You and I need to take our Christian life seriously. 
You and I need to take our position as a child of God and our duties before God as a serious matter to be performed. We are going to meet him. He is coming and we're going to give an account to him. That is not something to be feared. His coming is something to bring us great joy. But the flip side to that coin is that when we meet him in joy, he's going to examine the way we lived. Are you taking your Christian life seriously? Do you have, as this, this definition, a serious mind and purpose? Do you, is it a game? Or do you treat it, do you treat your Christian life and your duties, your responsibilities before the Lord with negligence? With carelessness? Or do you take those things seriously? The contrast to that, of course, drunkenness, the love of pleasure, fulfilling lusts, living for just the, the gratification of what makes you happy. The truth is, living for God does make you happy with a joy that exceeds and is of a different quality than the joy that comes from fulfilling and gratifying our pleasures in this world, and the things that, that we want to do in the flesh. So to serve God is not, a, is not a life without joy. It's a life of the greatest fulfillment. But in this, in this context, sobriety, soberness, is contrasted with drunkenness, which is the fulfilling of all those lusts. Listen, we Americans have a, we American Christians have a big problem with living simply for our own gratification and not taking our responsibilities before the Lord in light of His coming seriously. That's like, that's, this is the reason we're negligent in our duties toward our church, toward our families, toward our kids, toward God's Word. This is why we're hit and miss, because we do not take it seriously. This is why. But then you have the mention of watching versus sleeping. This is the day, right? We're the children of the day. What do you do in the day? The scriptures teach you work in the day, right? You don't work at night. You work in the day. The scriptures teach that in the daytime is the time where you, you have righteousness. And so the Lord wants us to be awake because we're people of the day. He doesn't want us to be sleeping in the day. Because the daytime is the time for service, for work, and for labor. I want to ask you in your Christian life, we know that this day in which we live is short. Are we, are we taking the opportunity that we have as children of the day to work and serve the Lord? Or are we being careless and sleepy in our faith, negligent in our, the labor that is before us, sloppy and thoughtless, disregarding what we know God wants us to do, procrastinating and putting it off to later. When the Lord wants us to serve Him now, the Lord says this, in light of my coming, I want you to live 
as a person in the day, a person who's wanting, who's using your time. The Bible uses this term, redeeming the time. Using your life, expending your life in service to the Lord. You know what that is? That's labor. That's activity. That's work. That's involvement, right? That's not state. That's not, that's not, that's not being a spectator. That's a spectator is someone who is, is the guy that you, when you see the road crews working on the side of the road and you always un, undoubtedly, every single time, you always see somebody standing with their arm on a shovel like this, right? That's a spectator. The Lord says in light of his coming, you and I need to be the worker need to be fully involved and invested in the work of God because it is daytime. We do not need to be sleeping in the daytime. We are children of the day. So I just want to ask you, as I ask myself, am I giving my life? Are you giving your life fully to God's service? You say, well, I'm not a preacher. That's not the question. This is not written to preachers. This is written to a church in Thessalonica. That's you and me. Are we sleeping right now where the Lord wants us awake? Are we drunken on our own self-gratification? Or are we taking our Christian life and our responsibilities and duties before the Lord seriously? Are we sober? And indeed, those are sober questions to ask ourselves. Because the truth is, and I close, The truth is that Jesus is coming soon. He said, I come quickly. His reward is with him. We're going to see him. We will see him. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not going to miss it. But don't you and I, shouldn't you and I want to meet him with joy that we have fully given ourselves to serve and labor for him? And we have taken our Christian life seriously. I think we should, right? Let's pray.